0: Inconvenient, adjective, causing trouble, difficulties, or discomfort. Truth, noun, the quality or state of being true. When something causes us trouble, gives us difficulty, or produces discomfort, we avoid it. But what happens when we can't? What happens when those things come from our relationship with God? What happens when those things that are so inconvenient are also unavoidably true? This summer, we take a look at truths that we'd rather avoid. Truths about human dignity, sexuality, relationships, our work, and our money. This summer, we explore inconvenient truths. Kids ages three to kindergarten, head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. Um, The rest of you, I invite you to... We're going to have a couple of spots in the Bible this morning. So one is going to be 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and the other is going to be Genesis 2. So you're going to want to put uh, your finger in 1 Thessalonians and then go to Genesis 2 because we're going to be in both places. If you don't have a Bible with you, the text should be in your order of worship. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, as always, there's some on the back table. Grab one because that is for you. That's our gift to you. I uh, want you to have that. But as with all things, it's going to be great for you to have the text in front of you if you can. We began this series called Inconvenient Truths uh, on the fact that God has created humanity uniquely in all of creation in His image. What uh, This phrase we threw out, the idea of the, the imago dei, that the image of God in, in Latin. And that was our starting point because that is the starting point for so many uniquely Christian doctrines, uniquely Christian ideas. And it is the starting point for much of the story of the Bible. We've seen so far that, that it is this doctrine, the idea that humanity is creating God's image that moves Christians to care about life uh, in, in all of... Uh, human life in all of in all of the ways that we do that it is it is this doctrine that becomes the basis for our understanding of human rights for human dignity for gender equality for our opposition to slavery, even down to our concept of gender and how men and women both uh, equally and yet uniquely image god and it continues this week as we talk about work and so for this week and for next week, we are going to be talking about work, what it is that we do how we Labor. And that may seem kind of strange to some of us, kind of out of place in church, right? Because isn't church supposed to deal with, with spiritual things? Doesn't church deal with what, the, the spiritual side of things? Basically, that's our way of cordoning off what we, what we hear about here to now for the hour that we have on Sunday morning. Because we're Presbyterians, right? So, so we only come to church once a week. Uh, and so we think, oh, this is great. So doesn't church just deal with that and we can go do our own thing the rest of the week? Well, kind of, but not exactly. Christianity is about spiritual things, but it's about spiritual things in that it's about all things. It's about all things. Jesus came to lay claim on all things, and that is why this series is called Inconvenient, because there are things to which we wish Christianity didn't speak to. We wish the Bible didn't speak to. We certainly wish Jesus didn't lay claim on them. And today we begin to look at the dignity of work. We, we begin there because with, with work's dignity because we have a tendency in our own hearts to either make too little of work or too much. We either want to denigrate work as a necessary evil or what is common in many of us, we elevate it to the level of a God. Neither is true. But to get to that, we need to hear from God. So if you have your place in those couple places in the Scriptures, if you'd stand in honor of God's Word... Uh, We're going to be reading Genesis 2, verses 7 to 9, skipping down to verse 15, and then we'll flip ahead to 1 Thessalonians. So, hear this. This is God's word to us. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And now, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9-12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that is indeed what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. And aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, over this time we ask your blessing. As we deal with this or look at this topic that affects all of us, whether we are a student and our work is our, is, is our academics or whether we are uh, laboring in the workforce uh, or we are laboring in our own homes, Lord, you, you are going to speak to us, to all of us in this way this morning. And so we pray that you would do that. You would soften our hearts so that we could receive you open our ears to hear You and our eyes to see You. Jesus, would You let what You have done and the glory with which You have created us and redeemed us come to the fore because You alone hold the words of eternal life. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So you may or may not be aware of this. My, my guess is that most of us probably aren't. But there's been a bit of a renaissance in the last 10 to 15 years uh, with Christians thinking about how their faith is to impact their work. And it's, it's a, I say it's a renaissance because Christians have a tendency, and you, if you look through the history of the church from the last 2,000 years of church history, you'll see cycles of this where Christians tend to um, abnormally exalt one kind of work above all others. In that we, we tend to, at, at times, overvalue what, what I'll call vocational ministry, in other words, church work, right? Pastors, missionaries, people who, who do what I do. Uh, we, we tend to elevate that to the detriment of all other vocations. But as Dorothy Sayers so eloquently put in her essay right after the end of World War II, she wrote an essay called Why Work. And she said this, How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life? The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. Does that sound familiar? I think that's probably what we think that the Bible has to say to us in the workforce, right? Just be honest and, you know, give, right? That's what we think it has to say. But, in fact, the Bible actually says a lot about work and working, right at the beginning of the story of the Bible, and throughout it, we see that as a theme that runs throughout the entire thing. And it does so because of that little phrase we talked about earlier, the Imago Dei. So this morning, as we begin this look at the dignity of work, we're going to look at just two things, two points this morning. We're going to look at what work is, and we're going to look at why we do it. Real easy, okay? You can follow in your outline if you want. What, what is work and why we work, Okay? Now let's start in 1 Thessalonians where we left off in our reading, shall we? Because here we're going to get a good idea of what work is. Let's start there in verse, uh, verse 9 in chapter 4. Paul says, Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Now, some of you are thinking, Rick, what, what does this have to do with work? It actually has nothing to do with work, you're thinking. Uh, actually, it does. You see, uh, scholars will tell you that because of uh, a few complexities. So one is the fact that we have all these verse numbers in our Bible, right? I don't know if you knew this. But when Paul was writing this letter, he didn't mark down numbers. So it wasn't like he got down with a thought and wrote nine after that and then started the next thought and then wrote ten. Those were added later for us to be able to quickly reference things. Um, they're a helpful guide, but they're not inspired. So when those things break up thoughts we tend to immediately break the thought off because we see a number and we stop reading uh, the words. The other is uh, some of the difficulties in translation. But but because of that, we will cordon off what is said in verse 9 from what's said later. But scholars will tell you that actually, this is all part of the same line of thought. In other words, what Paul says about work is grounded in this idea of love. Here's how. You and I tend to view our work, more than likely, and maybe, you're, maybe you're the exception of the rule. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Maybe you're the exception of the rule. But most of us view our work as something we have to do to get to our leisure, right? It's what we have to do to, to get to our leisure. And in other cases, maybe we see it as a necessary means to get to our end, which is the paycheck, right? The, the, the means is work. I have to work to get paid. What I really want is pay, uh, But that means that in both of those cases, ultimately, we view work as being about us. But the problem is that any Christian view of work can't be about us. Because the Christian view of us is that we're not about us. Right? The Christian view of us is that we were made for God and for others. And so Paul here is placing the command to work Under the rubric of loving one another all the more, right? He says, I know you guys get the whole love thing, but I'm going to encourage you to do it all the more, and here's how. This means, ultimately, friends, that our work is about loving others. Our work is for others. It is a loving act. That's different, isn't it? I mean, again, most of us see work as a a means to the end of finance, not as an act of love. And so in that way, when we see it as an end of the finance, what, what we do isn't that important. What's important is what we get from it. But here, did you note know, you know that Paul didn't even mention the idea of pay? Except at the end where he says, you know, work insofar as you're not dependent upon anyone else. But that, the idea of remuneration isn't, such, uh, isn't, isn't foremost in his thought. And this makes sense if you know a little bit about what's going on in Thessalonica. So Thessalonica is a Greek city. Uh, Paul has, you know, helped to get the church started there and now he's writing a letter uh, correcting some things that he's heard about that are going on and one of them is that there are some dudes in the church who have gotten so stoked about the idea that Jesus is coming back and you have the type, right? Like that's all they talk about Jesus coming back and I don't think they're quite to the crazy level of holding up a sign that says the apocalypse is near but they're close to that, right? And so they're so stoked about this idea that Jesus is coming back that they've gone from working to waiting. And so instead of being out working, they're thinking, oh, Jesus is coming back soon, so I'm just going to sit on my couch. Or, I don't know if they had couches, but you get the idea. I'm just going to sit around. However, since those people still needed to eat, and as we are all well aware, Jesus hasn't come back yet, uh, these folks became a burden on the rest of the church. So Paul is telling them that work allows them to live into the love they were made for. Love, love all the more, and do so by working. Because they were made to be producers and contributors, not consumers. Okay? So work is about love, but it's also creative. Look down at verse 11. Paul says, aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Now, I think for most of us, this is about what we would expect to hear from a Christian. Because what it amounts to is... Listen, keep to yourself, mind your own business, work with your hands. We're like, that that could come out of Ned Flanders' mouth, and we would be fine with that. Like that sounds normal. Uh, But I don't think we understand exactly what Paul was speaking to. You see, again, Thessalonica is a Greek city. The Greeks and the Romans picked this up, had an idea about work. Uh, They had an idea about what the kind of work that you should aspire to is. And and Paul saying this would have offended them because in ancient Greek philosophy, the most noblest of ambitions, the best you could ever hope for was to have the least amount of touch on creation. Because, of course, the material world's bad, right? And because the material world is bad, uh, you want to get as much distance between you and the material world as you can. And so the ultimate, uh, the ultimate vocation, the ultimate thing that you could work to do would be to sit around all day and think. It's the ideal of the philosopher... That that is the ultimate, that is the best you could ever hope for. In fact, the entire Greek culture was established so that the elite, those that had money and influence, could do that while their slaves and the lesser people did the the manual labor. And that means that working with your hands was seen as something truly below enlightened people. It was the environment of slaves. It was the environment of the less gifted. In other words put in phrases maybe we'd understand, there were lots of jobs that the Greeks simply wouldn't do. Because it was beneath them. And most of it had to do with working with their hands. But here's Paul an insanely educated Roman citizen who's also Jewish. He was educated in the Roman system, had lots of working knowledge of their, of, of their philosophers and their, their poets, but also in, in Jewish interpretation of, of the Bible and, and all of those things. And he is telling them to work with their hands. It is incredibly countercultural. And, and we don't even tend to know it, right? Or do we? I mean... We never think that labor that's more manual than informational, more specifically hands than specifically head, is somehow lesser, do we? We never think that. Hmm. Paul's point here, though, is not to make a social statement in that way. His point is that our work is to be creative. Work with your hands. Work in creating something. He's not saying purely, therefore, Christians, all of you should be doing manual labor. He's using it as a metaphor, but the point is you need to be creating. Paul himself knew this because he worked with his hands. Paul supported his missionary work by working as a leather worker, a tent maker in the ancient world. So then, work is to be out of love. It's to be a loving expression, but it is a loving expression of creative energy. Okay? Okay? Lastly, the work is a calling. Now, this one's a little harder to get, so I need you to follow me if you can. Look at the beginning of verse 11. Here's the Ned Flanders line. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. Now, what is that about? Because I've just made fun of that as if that's what we'd expect it to say, but it probably doesn't mean what we think it means. So what, what does that mean? Okay, first we have, to, we have a situation. We have to understand what's going on. We have a situation in which there are a number of people who in this church who are not working okay we have a number of people in this church that are not working now this isn't because they want to work but can't okay those that want to work but can't we call them unemployed there's nothing wrong with that it's it's a it's a shame we want we want those folks working but they want to work but can't this is people these are people that can work but won't okay can work but won't and then paul says this idea of instead work with your hands so One of the things that comes along with these aspirations to live quietly, to mind your own business, uh, is to to work, okay? Now, last thing, let's focus on the word aspire, and then we're going to tie these together. The Greek word that's there, and many of us probably know this, but some of us probably don't, the the Bible wasn't actually written in English, and certainly not in these and thous. okay? The Bible was written in Greek, and so here, that word that we translate uh, aspire means to strive earnestly for. So if I'm to literally translate it, the way I'd say it is, um, strive earnestly for stillness. Be urgent to be still. Paul is addressing restlessness. Mind your own business. You know, seek a quiet life. He's he's addressing restlessness, that feeling inside us that happens when things aren't right. And so the Christian doctrine of work isn't simply something that's loving— not only does it need to be creative, but it's something that is uniquely fitted to us because you know that restlessness happens when it doesn't seem like we're doing what we're made for. And see, this is where Christians have periodically pushed against the notion that God only cares about vocational ministry, church work. The great uh, Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, uh, all of the Protestant reformers were big on this idea, but Luther, when um, he, he was known for saying you know, he'd read a psalm like Psalm 145. Psalm 145 says that God uh, f- feeds everyone in the season, like he, he is the one who provides food for us. But I don't know if you noticed this. That food that you eat didn't just like poo, onto the table, right? It just didn't appear there. And Luther was saying the same thing. And he said, look, God provides food for all, but the food on your table didn't just appear there. A farmer worked to get it there. In our context, we would also say that someone, you know, had to pick the produce, had to package the produce, had to deliver the produce, and and then we get it. So when Psalm 145 says God provides that food, we should understand that God is providing that food through those workers. You see that? So what does this mean? We'll get to more about how God does this in a minute, but for us to understand what work is, here's the principle. You and I... Have certain gifts, uh, we have certain tendencies, certain abilities, certain proclivities, certain passions that lend themselves to a certain kind of expending of creative energy. That is the kind of work we should be doing. Now, notice two things. First, what I didn't say is uh, that certain kinds of things that make a certain amount of money, right? Interestingly enough, the amount of money one makes doing one's labor is relatively irrelevant to the Christian doctrine of work. I know that's not what you're going to hear, right? Because all of us have been told, like, what you need to do is you need to go and make the most amount of money possible and and be as successful as you can and da-da-da-da. But the Christian doctrine of work doesn't... The the idea of of remuneration is important. Don't get me wrong. It's not completely irrelevant, but it's relatively irrelevant. Nor did I say that this means because you have certain gifts and passions and abilities and proclivities, that this means that you can only do one job. It means that there's a certain spectrum of jobs, yes. It means that you are designed to do a certain kind of work, and when you don't, whether you are not doing that kind of work because you're chasing money, and like, what I really want to do, I can't, I can't do. And so i got to do this, because I, I need to make all the money I can. Or because you simply refuse to work. When we do that, there will be restlessness. So then, putting these things together, what is work? Work is the loving use of creative energy to serve others which you are uniquely created to do. Let me say that again. Work is the loving use of creative energy to serve others which you are uniquely created to do. So that's the what. But if we stop just with the what, we can can continue in this mercenary relationship we have with work. So we need to address the why. And when we address the why, we see that our relationship with work is bound up in a greater relationship, one that actually gives meaning to all others. So for that, let's flip back to Genesis 2, okay? If you've been in 1 Thessalonians, flip back over to Genesis 2. And uh, chapter 2, verse 7 says this. Then God formed, and if you have your own Bible, underline that, formed. God formed the man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord planted, underline that word, a garden in the east. Now, stop there. Now, here's something unique we don't often recognize. The, the Bible it actually uh, is fairly unique in the stories of the ancient world in terms of its creation story. Now, having a, a, an origin story is not unique, right? All people ask the question of where did I come from? All of us. I don't care how modern or how, how um, uh, elite you kind of assume you are, what kind of worldview you hold. We all ask the question, where do I come from? We all answer those questions, right? And so to have an origin story is not unique. God gave us that because we answer or we ask that question. We even ask it as modern enlightened people and we answer it with stories that are equally impossible to prove but just holding as much power over our imaginations. But most ancient origin stories have creation happening through conflict so then uh the babylonian one the the one that's more most often than not paralleled with the bible it's called enuma elish and in the babylonian story there are two gods at 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 war marduk it's a great god name marduk it's the name of a dog in a comic strip isn't it anyway there's marduk and then there's tiamat and marduk defeats tiamat and creation comes from tiamat's rotting corpse In the biblical story, though, creation is not out of conflict. It is a work of God. It doesn't come from conflict at all. It comes from a creative act of love. And I said this two weeks ago when we talked about guys, but that word formed there is a specific one, the word that says that God formed. It's not everything else in the story is is God speaking and things becoming, but that word formed is specific. It's the same word that you would use of a a sculptor who's who's getting his hands in the dirt and he's molding something out of clay that God is actually using his hands, sculpting the man. And And then we see God planting a garden, right? First, he's... He's molding something out of his hands. Then he's planting a garden. See, the amazing thing about the Bible is the Old Testament, God shows up in the first few pages as a sculptor and then as a gardener. And then in the New Testament, God shows up as a carpenter. Apparently, God's pretty close to those who work with their hands because he does it too (laughs) all the time. God is a God who is working. And he's working in manual labor in the Bible. But see, this is different because in the Greek world, the world that Paul is speaking to, the gods existed in this bliss where there was no work. Why would a God have to work? We kind of think that too. Wouldn't, wouldn't the gods just kind of exist in this blissful state? Why would God ever get his hands dirty? The God of the Bible is working. In fact, as, as Laura read for us in John 5, Jesus says that God actually continues to work, and so does he. So just as I said last week that God is a God at rest, here we see that God works. The two go together, actually. We don't have time to talk about this today, but rest and work go together. Why? Because we need that continual cycle of labor and celebration, just as God did. So on the one hand, we work because God works, but that's only a piece if God works and we are made in God's image, then it should go without saying that we work, right? And indeed it does. Look down at, verse, at chapter 2, verse 15. He says this. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. All right, now this is so important. Listen close. Check back in if you've checked out. Two words there. To work and to keep. See, nearly every culture of the ancient world, just like they have an origin story, nearly every culture of the ancient world has this Edenic paradise type story. I think it's probably like a genetic memory that we just passed down and they, you know, we all kind of... These ancient cultures came up with their own stories. Thankfully, God gave us the one that actually happened. But here are all these stories. But here's what never happens in any of those stories except in the Bible. There's never work in in paradise. But did you notice that that actually is going on? The idea that there's no work in paradise should make sense to us because very few of us view work as something that's good. At best, it's necessary. But the Bible tells us we're made for work, right? God takes the man. He puts him in the garden to work and to Keep it. And notice that this is before sin enters the world. There's no fall. There's no, there's no sin. Eden is a place of perfect provision. But even the place of perfect provision needs to be worked. And again, those words that are used there are important. The first one we translate as work. That's good. To work. Yes, yeah, sure, it's to work. In the Old Testament, consistently, over and over, that word work is used for the work of priests in the temple. In other words, it's a religious word. Adam was to work the garden. And it's meant religiously. When's the last time you thought of your yard work as religious? Some of you are snickering because you're like, we know you do, Rick. And that's, okay, this is true. I love my yard. But that's not the point. How often do you think of just the labor that you do week in and week out as religious? Because when we see humans working for the first time, God says... God uses the same word to communicate that as he would the priests later on. The next word we translate as keep means to guard or defend. And so Adam was created to work in such a way as to both serve and to keep out evil. Now, here's why that matters. So much of our culture is based around this notion that we work hard or we cut corners so that we don't have to work anymore, right? Isn't the goal... To not have to work? There's like three people in the room who remember the 80s Canadian rock band Loverboy, but they had this song called Working for the Weekend. Like, everybody's... Eh? Yeah? Three. It was exactly three people. went. Uh, yeah, that's it. All right. But the point is, like, everybody's working for the weekend. In uh, Let me use a, a little more modern example. In, like, uh, hip-hop culture, the idea of a mogul, right? What's the point of being a mogul? You don't have to do anything anymore. You've got your hands in so many things. You are, like, king of the world, Right? Jay-Z is king of the world. You don't have to do anything anymore. You work hard or you cut corners so that you don't have to anymore. We work to provide for our leisure. Some of us long for the day when we can retire, right? We don't have to get up Monday through Friday. We can just fish or read or travel or collect shells. We We think work somehow hinders our freedom, Right? So we, we work hard, we, or if we have a different cultural assumption, we take shortcuts so that we can get to that. But the Bible, though, tells us that we were made for work. You see, freedom in the Bible is always a freedom to live, not a freedom from constraints, but a freedom to live within the constraints that we were made for, right? So in other words, if you, if you say, look, it's a, I'm free, therefore my freedom will be best expressed when I go live on the moon without a space suit, you are not free to live on the moon without a spacesuit. You will die. There's no oxygen. You must have oxygen to live. And so you are free within the constraint of the oxygen. In the same way like a bird it decides one day, I'm done with the sky. I want to live under the water. They will die, right? Freedom is not freedom from constraints. It's freedom to live within the constraints we were designed for. And so wanting to be free from work is no different than wanting to go live on the moon without a spacesuit. Our God is a God who works and we are made in his image to work also. Listen, if you were to go today into King's Daughters, just right down the street. And you were to ask some and you were to just talk with some of the residents there. You know what you would hear? You'd hear a lot of interesting stories, would be my guess, but a common thread you would hear people who wish they could be productive. Who could contribute We were designed to flourish as we lovingly use our creative energy to serve others as we were uniquely designed to. But here's the problem. And this is why we have to even go into the idea of restoring work at all. Our relationship with work is all messed up. And that is because what was in the garden didn't stay that way. Right? Sin did enter the world. And I knew this when we talked again about men a couple of weeks ago, but the call to work, to exercise dominion over the earth, which means not to control so much as to cultivate and develop, that, that that call to work didn't go away when sin entered. It just got harder. Some of that was because of the entrance of futility in everyone in this room, no matter how you labor, whether it's in the home, out of the home, in, in the tech sector, or in education. Like, everyone knows about futility, Right? You're working, you're working, and it doesn't seem to ever get you anywhere? Some of that was because of futility, but most of that is because of what we do with the work we have. Because you see, our relationship with work was meant to line up under a greater relationship, under a relationship with God. But sin came in, and it broke that relationship. I know most of us think that sin is about breaking rules, and... It is that, but ultimately it's about breaking a relationship. And when that relationship was broken, all the other relationships you and I have, whether it's to each other, to ourselves, to our own psyches, to our work, to creation, all of them got one cattywampus. They're free-floating all over the place, vying for dominance because that relationship with God is no longer there. And so because of sin, our work tends to mean either too little to us or too much. When it means too little, we tend to see it as a necessary evil, right? We have to do it to get what we really want, which is money. And you know what I mean, right? You work hard so that you can get the money so that you can then go and do what you want to do, whether that's a weekend at the lake or buying the latest toys or what have you. Maybe it's just so that I can get enough money to feel safe, We work to get money so we can do what we want. In the Christian realm, the way Christians justify this is we view our work as simply a way to give to God's work, right? I, yeah, I go and I make lots of money and we justify in our heads. I make lots of money so that I can give lots of money to God's work. huh. You keep telling yourself that. That's, uh, that's why you're doing that, all right? That's when we see it as too little. When we see it as too much, our work becomes about who we are, Right? It, l- Far from the idea that our work is going to somehow bring us some kind of satisfaction, when we think of it too much, we want it to give us a status. Normally in our culture, this is wrapped up in, how, in, in our title, or how much we make. right? If I have that, that uh, vice president title, or I, I get that new corner office, or, or maybe it's just, I, I, "I make this many figures, then, then I'll be somebody. That tends to be a little more prevalent in the upper middle class sections of our population. Whereas the the former, the idea of satisfaction, a little more prevalent in the lower socioeconomic brackets. But, But notice this. In both of those ideas, work is about you. It's ultimately about you. For that to change, work has to be restored where it was meant to be. Where it both has great dignity... We can't make too little of it because God works. And if God works, then he has given us this great privilege to image him in that way. It has great dignity. But it's not of ultimate worth. Because the ultimate place is taken by God. Do you see how that works? For for work to return to the dignity it was meant to have in our lives, we have to be restored to God. And that is exactly what Jesus came to do. And here's the way it speaks to this, okay? If you believe that you don't need a status for yourself... That corner office is great. It's comfy. But that doesn't say anything about me. That, that, that new title or those, those, that added zero at the end of my paycheck, that, that's great. That doesn't say anything about me. Why? Because the, the only status I need was the perfect one that Jesus gave me before God. If you actually believe that you don't need a status for yourself because Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't and paid for all of our failures in his substitutionary death then you don't need your work to provide you with a status. It's irrelevant. Marginalized. There's nothing better than Jesus' status. Now, on the other hand, if you believe that by placing your faith in Jesus, you are restored to the God that you were made for, restored to the God that you and I hunger for, then you don't need to look to your work to provide you the money or the leisure that you think will satisfy you, because you know that only Christ can satisfy you. And so work is able to be restored to that place that it was meant to be. Not too little, not too much, but right where it was meant to be. But believing this also allows you to turn outward so that all of your work, listen to me, all of your work, whether it's, it's cleaning streets, practicing law, serving food, changing diapers, or grading papers, can be seen as a calling to God or calling from God to serve the world. Listen, don't you see how this works? How is it that God exercises justice in the world? More often than not, he he does it through his servants making and enacting just laws. How does God normally heal people? I mean, don't get me wrong. God can do the, like he does heal people like that. That's for real. That's not just Christian mumbo jumbo. He actually does that. But normally, he heals people through the skilled hands of healing professionals. Many of whom, some of you are in that line of work. How is it that God makes the world beautiful? He does it through the work of those who plan neighborhoods, who build well, and even through the hands of those who collect garbage so that our streets aren't full of trash. Does God need us to do that? No. He doesn't need us to do that. He doesn't need the farmer to farm. He he could literally make food appear on your table. He doesn't need us to go and build a nice house. Like, you know, the, the, the scriptures say that Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. He can do it, but instead he invites us into it. He has given us the privilege of being those through whom he does his work in the world. Let me conclude with this. Next week, we're going to talk more specifically about this, uh, and specifically the place of work in our lives. Like I said earlier, guys, uh, there is an event this Saturday, uh, this coming Saturday evening, at Oak Hill Farm where we're going to be talking about this. Let me, as an aside, let me say this. Ladies, we are not forgetting about you, nor are we implying anything about the nature of your work. Okay? Uh, This is, the idea, what I've just talked about, the Christian doctrine of work is not the Christian doctrine of dudes. Right? We talked about that two weeks ago, about guys. We're talking about the Christian doctrine of work. This, this event began as a men's event, uh, and that, that is all. And so, I promise you we will have more events like this in the future in which everyone will be present at. Uh, But guys, if you're interested in coming to this, if you haven't signed up, come talk to me or to PAC. But what I want us to leave with is this. Once again, God designed us to image him. We reflect him back into the world. From that image comes many things. But one of those things is that you and I were made to lovingly give our creative energy in the service of others. Not simply because we were made to, but because that is what our God does. Our God works. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we reflect and ponder about the nature of what you have called us to do Monday through Saturday, I pray that you would bless this time, that you would uh, free us from the bondage to thinking that our work can provide us satisfaction through, through money and leisure. And I pray that you would release us from the bondage of thinking that our work can provide us a status and instead free us through the gospel of Jesus to see that all those things have been provided for us in him. Not as something to work for, but as a gift to be received. And Lord, I pray that as you form this congregation into a, a group that understands that their work has great dignity, no matter what it is. And there are lots of us in this room who work in lots of different ways. All of it has great dignity. But none of it can be ultimate because you alone were made to be that in our lives. And so, Lord, as you shape us by the gospel, free us to live that gospel in in the world through our work. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.